Welcome everybody to our first negotiation podcast. Uh, today I have a very special guest for us. That's Paul Mertz, uh, who is uh, uh, probably a synonym of uh, European and Dutch negotiator negotiations and negotiators. Uh, Paul, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Remy. It's, uh, it's really an honor to be here with you and uh, to try to share my experiences as far as negotiation is concerned. Great. Uh, Paul, tell me, um, how did it all start? How did you uh, find, find out about your passion for negotiation? What was, the, was there a breakthrough moment? Uh, how did it all start? Well, uh, actually, it uh, already started when I was about uh, 12 years old. I got interested in simulation exercises. Uh, I mean, nobody knew exactly what it was. But with friends, we were drawing maps and then you know, you, you, you have a country, but then if you have a country, you need a constitution. If you have a constitution, you need an army, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we were uh, doing something that we now call geofiction. Uh, I stopped doing that, but uh, nowadays we're doing this with computers, et cetera, but I'm no longer involved. So I got interested in simulation games. I got interested in things like uh, Roman and Greek history, uh, Turkic history, Mongolian history, etc. And then at a certain moment in uh, 1978, I could join, I got a job uh, as a staff member of the Dutch Society of International Relations. And uh, they needed somebody to train young uh, diplomats of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And at the end of every course, there was a simulation game of several days. And uh, so we were preparing for that. And we had a lot of lectures on content. Uh, and then they had to negotiate for a full night. Uh, and there were a lot of emotions during the night. Three o'clock, people started to cry. Uh, people walked out. Uh, others went out of the building following them because they needed them for consensus, etc. And then I got complaints because the young diplomats said, listen, uh, we get a lot on content, but we get nothing on negotiation process. We don't know how to negotiate actually. So we should also have something on that. And I thought, yeah, you're correct. Uh, you're correct. Simulations as such is not enough. And so I was looking for negotiation trainers. I could only find them in the private sector. Um, so I invited them to, to, uh, to Klingendal, my institute, uh, at a certain moment. And I said, okay, to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, if you pay me a thousand guilders at the time, and you sent me uh, 20 uh, ambassadors uh, to be trained in negotiation, you know, then I have 20,000, and then I can get the top trainers in the world. So the first one who came was Pierre Kass. Uh, he's uh, from Switzerland, but he's Belgian. And he was fantastic. Um, He's a guy who can put uh, people under hypnosis while the people are not even aware of it. So I learned a lot by looking at him and looking at him and looking at him. And then he said, well, you know, I only uh, train business people normally. I never train diplomats, but uh, maybe we can do this together. And uh, do you have any exercises that I can, can use? And yeah, I mean, I've been writing these uh, simulation games, uh, conference diplomacy, things like that. So we started to combine, and after that, I got uh, Raymond Zana, also from Switzerland. And then at a certain moment, after working together, you, you think, well, I can also do this on my own. 
and uh, maybe that's even better because with two trainers, you know, the personalities will have to match. And if they don't match, uh, then you really have a problem. So at a certain moment, it is, uh, it's also a good idea to go on by yourself. So beginning of the 90s, actually, I started to train internationally uh, already in 1989, 1990, and then it was every month or sometimes twice a month. While I was also, of course, active in my own institute as the, uh, let's say, deputy director, which in principle was the manager. But if you are the manager of an academic institute, you know, you have no legitimacy, legitimacy whatsoever, with the, especially with the researchers, because the researchers say, well, you know, content is important and management has to be done, but it, we don't want to be bothered by it. They want to get a salary, but, you know, somebody else should take care of that. So I thought if I'm going to specialize in negotiation because nobody was doing any research on negotiation or whatever, then I also have some more legitimacy with those who are working on content. And uh, so it worked and uh, I did more and more training and at a certain moment uh, with young people as well, uh, I trained uh, Klingendal staff and nowadays they can stand on my sh shoulders and also others. So uh, the point group came, the program on international negotiation training. I started that five years ago. And now I have a lot of young people who, who are extremely good and uh, who are, I think, even better than I am. Well, it's maybe not too difficult. Uh, anyway, uh, they can stand on my shoulders while I was standing on the shoulders of, of those before me. And so what you see is that you get more and more and more very good young professionals. In the meantime, in, uh, in at the end of the 90s, I was invited to be a member of PIN, that's the Processes of International Negotiation Program. That's Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the genesis of PIN? Um, I, I found it uh, really striking and super interesting, especially especially its role in the um, in the in the Cold War and uh, how it contributed to uh, uh, to um, reestablish or strengthen the, the peace by uh, focusing on research, uh, joint research between conflicted blocs, political blocs. Yeah, well, at a certain moment, uh, there was a kind of relaxation between East and West. In the 70s, uh, we got the Conference uh, for Security and Cooperation in Europe, for example. Uh, and then uh, Johnson, President Johnson and uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs Gromyko of the Soviet Union, they met and they said, well, we should do more. We should have more confidence building measures. And one of them should be an academic confidence building measure. So they said, we need a, an institute where Americans and Russians are going to work together. And we will also invite uh, Europeans. And later on, they invited also other countries like Japan, Australia, etc. Uh, the idea was to put the whole thing in principle in a neutral country. France said, we are ready to give you a place in Fontainebleau. But the Russians said, no, no, it should be a neutral country. And it became Austria. And in the palace of Maria Theresia, about 20 minutes outside Vienna, in a place called Luxembourg, very small, it was a beautiful park and everything, they created the International Institute of Applied Systems Analysis. And the first director, Howard Rafa, who also wrote a famous book on the art and science of negotiation, which is interesting because the question is, is negotiation art or is it science or is it both? 
but located in another matter. He said, well, we have all this research, etc., but we have to do something with it. You have to take these reports to the political level. How do you do that? You can do that through negotiation. What do we know about negotiation? Not much, especially not between states. And uh, so he started this PIN project. And there was a conference in 1987. Uh, Mrs. Martina Markov published the book, a second conference in 1989. And uh, this was uh, the result was the Kamenyuk book uh, on, on uh, international negotiation which actually wasn't really edited by Kremenyuk, Viktor Kremenyuk, but uh, the Americans wanted to do the Russians a favor. So uh, they helped him editing the book. And that is the first pin book, you might say, in pin, started officially in 1991 with uh, Bert Spector as the staff member who is now the uh, editor of the series of uh, the Journal of International Negotiation, which is still running. And this is how it all started. And what Pin is doing is uh, publishing a book a year, uh, publishing a, a kind of magazine uh, twice a year. And uh, at the beginning, it was all on paper. The books are still on paper, but the magazine uh, in the meantime is, uh, is on the website of the German Institute of Global and Area Studies. Because after IASA, after the Institute in Luxembourg, we had uh, we, we said, okay, we're going to another place. So for seven years, we were at my institute, Klingendal. And then after that, from 1919, no, from 2000, sorry, 2019 onwards, we were in Hamburg at this German Institute of Global and Area Studies. And we are going to leave it. Uh, we go maybe to another place, probably it might be Uppsala, we'll see. But these are researchers, uh, the most famous one, William Zartman, who is our guru, you might say. And then there are members from uh, Belgium, Valérie Rozou, a specialist on uh, uh, the shadow of the past, to what extent has the shadow of the past an impact on the present and on the future. Uh, Guillaume Giffard was a specialist on China, but also on terrorism. Uh, then we have uh, Rudolf Schüssler, he's from Germany. He's a philosopher, also expert on European Union negotiation. Uh, Michael Troitsky from uh, Moscow. And Guillaume, the famous International Institute, uh, International Academy University, which we called the spy school in the past. I don't know if they're still, <laughs> I don't think they are. It was not my experience when I was teaching here. And then we have a Van Hampson, Canada, famous as far as conflict resolution is concerned. We have Mark Anstey, uh, South African who lives in London, who is very good uh, as far as negotiations on the ground between trade unions and, 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 and the bosses of, uh, of companies and things like that. Um, uh, that, that is more or less the tableau de la troupe. At the moment, we have a new member, Sinisha Vokovic, who is from Montenegro, who works in Washington, uh, but also in the Netherlands, in Leiden University. Uh, so this is quite a, quite a nice group. And uh, we are connected with this program on international negotiation training I mentioned before. This is super interesting, super exciting. So it started um, as a as a peace uh, peace strengthening measure measure um, by connecting uh, connecting scientists from uh, conflicting uh, conflicting political uh, political blocks, uh, yeah. and it became an international society of uh, you know, peace and negotiation researchers. I know from our past conversations, Paul, um, which I uh, very much appreciate and value, 
that um, you've coined or you, you attach a, a lot of significance to the European approach to negotiation. Could you uh, maybe uh, briefly explain uh, the heritage of it and the meaning of uh, European approach uh, to, uh, to negotiation? Yeah, I think we are a little bit haunted by, uh, by American dominance. Uh, uh, Harvard uh, at a certain moment started the PON uh, project, the program on negotiation. Uh, the Americans saw that they were not very effective negotiators, that the Soviets were more effective. So CIA gave money to Harvard uh, Law School to uh, do research as far as negotiation is concerned. There was not so much research done, but anyway, they started the training program and it's very famous. Uh, you have books like uh, Getting to Yes, Roger Fisher, Bill Urey, etc. My problem with it, and I think the problem with the whole PIN group, the whole PIN group has that problem as well, is that it is very American in its approach, meaning it's very materialistic in its approach. It, especially at the beginning, it completely ignores the question of emotion. Well, we know that in Europe or in South Caucasus or in um, the Arab world, the Middle East, you know, emotion can sometimes be more important than, than interest. We can ask ourselves the question to what extent at the moment uh, Vladimir Putin is really doing something that is in the interest of Russia. At least short term, I think it's not in the interest of Russia taking Ukraine. We don't know if it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen, but we never, you never know. Long term, you might say it might be in the interest of Russia because uh, they see Ukraine as part of their heritage. Um, still, I think there's a very strong emotional nationalist factor. And of course, for Putin, uh, it helps him to, uh, to get something back of uh, of, of, of uh, the people, the people are not really honoring, honoring him uh, nowadays, but he might get some popularity out of that probably. Um, but if you really look at it, you know, as uh, Richelieu said, when he um, opposed the king who wanted to go to another war, uh, he said, well, listen, uh, more important, it is much more important if uh, France is, uh, a rich country, if, if the people are, are doing a good, uh, having a good life in, in that country. So, um, 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 yes, uh, we lost you for a second, um, but now you're back. Uh, um, so uh, you started uh, started speaking a little bit about uh, the genesis of, um, of, of PIN and European approach to negotiation. If there was, um, is there anything else except emotions that uh, makes us different uh, to uh, to what we already know from the research done at other places, let's say, I don't know, especially in the Anglo-Saxon Anglo countries, but maybe oh. also in Asia. What makes us, uh, makes us unique as European in the context of, um, of negotiation? Yeah, well, and for a moment, I just want to, 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 to add to it that, that the Americans very much look, look at the negotiator as a rational negotiator. Uh, but then they look at it at, from the, the, uh, my feeling, from my idea, from the point of view of, of American rationality, which isn't always European rationality. And uh, the question is anyway, uh, what is rationality? And I think Chinese rationality might be different from Japanese or, or French or, or German or Polish uh, rationality. So that's already a, a point that the rational negotiator to what extent does. Uh, he or she exists, then you get the question 
of uh, yeah, uh, separate the people from the problem is one of the things they say. Well, the people are often the problem. Look at Donald Trump, maybe look at, uh, at Putin. You cannot really separate them. There's the question of transparency. Uh, Harvard says be transparent about uh, what you want because then everything will go much faster. Well, you cannot really be transparent in diplomacy. Yeah, you can be transparent in diplomacy in, in back channel negotiation. You can be transparent in the corridors, you know, if you know each other, if, if you have a good relationship with the other negotiator, even if you completely oppose the other negotiator. But I think that is the diplomatic trade that even if you are completely in an opposite camp, you still go on to talk, you still try to be empathic to the other negotiator, not sympathetic, but trying to understand the other negotiator. Relationships in diplomacy are extremely important, but transparency isn't always possible. And uh, we have this uh, famous French ambassador, Francois de Caille, who wrote a book, uh, La Manière de Négocier avec les Souverains, how to negotiate with the princes, like Machiavelli, the principe, so the, 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 the dynasty, the monarch, that is the sovereign. And, and he says in this book of 1716 that, you know, you cannot always be transparent. And actually he says the ambassador should have a poker face. Now we don't think that this should be the case nowadays. And also because of electronic means and so on, you know, uh, you, cannot, uh, you cannot hide everything. Still uh, to be as transparent as, uh, as Harvard wants us to be, I think that doesn't work. And it was my own, uh, experience at a certain moment when we were in the Peace Palace and we had uh, a Russian Duma members on one, one side and we had the Chechen leadership on the other side. And the moderator was Bill Yuri of this book, Getting to Guest. And he just didn't give enough time to, to the Chechnyans to tell about all the atrocities, etc., etc. He didn't allow for enough time four talks outside the plenary. Well, normally progress is made in the corridors. Uh, well, we need to, the order of the plenary, but you know, uh, without the corridors, it doesn't work. And so the whole negotiation failed. And in that sense, I think the Americans are a little bit too naive, not only in that sense. And we should not be the victim of that. We should try to create our own European approach, meaning for me that it's not one track you cannot say, ah, if you follow this path, then you will be more effective negotiator. I think everybody in principle is a good negotiator. Everybody has to ask herself or himself, can I do better? Uh, and then we have to leave it to the people uh, to use those skills where they think they are effective and to leave aside those skills where they say, well, this is not for me. So we have to, to approach, I think, negotiation from as many different directions as possible. And we should not forget that it is not only about the negotiation process and the actors in the process, but it's very much about the context of that process. And uh, at the moment, Ukraine is everything about context, everything about context. And if you don't take that into account, you don't link it to the negotiation process, you, you get nowhere. And again, yeah, sorry to, to link it with uh, an American view, but uh, as Biden is saying that uh, the Americans expect a, a Russian invasion uh, tomorrow, and, uh, you know, the Europeans say, well, why do you say that? 
That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't do that. Keep your mouth shut, right? So uh, in that sense, I think that uh, we Europeans uh, have a role to play and we should not just mimic what the Americans tell us to do. That's, that's super interesting. You've mentioned, uh, Paul, you've mentioned a couple of historical examples. Uh, and uh, I, would like us, uh, I would like us to focus for a, for a few minutes on, on history. I know you're, a, uh, uh, you're fascinated by history and uh, we've had a lot of deep conversations about it in the past. Uh, uh, I would be interested uh, if when you think about great negotiators, uh, let's start with history, then we maybe move over to more contemporary examples. Uh, when you think about historical, I don't want to say role models, but at least examples of uh, of um, of people who uh, were extraordinary in terms of whatever you consider important in terms of effectiveness um, of, of of negotiators, who would that be? Who would you put uh, on on your list, Paul? Well, we could start with Cardinal Richelieu, who said that uh, there has to be permanent negotiation. Meaning that even if you don't need to negotiate, uh, you, you need your networks to be in place. Uh, you, you need to have several options. And this is still what, what the French are doing. I mean, they have uh, Alliance Francaise uh, in, in many, many uh, places far away in this world. Uh, I've been in Mongolia several times. There's an Alliance Francaise là-bas. And, and even if it isn't useful, it's there. You know, Richelieu said uh, you should always be prepared to negotiate because uh, negotiation is not as costly as war. Uh, it's sometimes, it's often more easy to start a war than to start a successful negotiation process to solve certain issues. But of course, war is disastrous. Uh, and, and, and therefore, I think we should prefer negotiation if possible. So there's Richelieu, he, he uh, of course, for him, the raison d'etat, so the, the interest of France was number one. So if he had to support the uh, Protestants in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire, then he would do that and support them against the Catholics. Well, at the same time, he was subsidizing uh, Catholic princes as well. Uh, so I, I think that is, that's an interesting example. Also is interesting is his um, successor Mazarin, who was an Italian Protestant actually, but became a Catholic in order to be the, um, the counselor in, in France, things like that. We have then, of course, the, the famous uh, Prince de Talleyrand, who might be seen maybe as the best negotiator ever, uh, and maybe also the most opportunistic uh, <laughs> negotiator ever. The guy who managed to keep France a little bit bigger um, after the downfall of Napoleon than France had been before the Re revolution. So France came out of the Napoleonic Wars being a little bit, having a little bit more territory than, uh, than before the, the, the revolution, and notwithstanding the fact that Napoleon lost the wars. I mean, this is a masterpiece. And Talleyrand was, uh, well, I wouldn't say France, but he had good relationships with everybody, even with Alexander I, who was a danger for Europe but he could tame him. And when uh, Alexander came to Paris in the end and occupied Paris, he stayed in the palace of Talleyrand. Of course, Metternich at the time was spying on everybody in the Vienna negotiations in 1814, 1815, even spying on his own uh, emperor and empress. 
but they had spies, uh, just the personnel, you know, they were all spies in all the embassies. Uh, these are the, the great negotiators. You, you look at uh, later on, at the end of the First World War, an example of, of a not very great negotiator, I would say, was Wilson, uh, with declarations as, as self-determination, and nobody knew what self-determination would be. And okay, the Romanians uh, got their self-determination and the Poles got it and so on. Uh, but the Ukrainians in Poland didn't get it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this is very, very selective. And, and in the end, Wilson was a bit of a danger to the negotiations because he was a, uh, uh, he wanted to do something good, but doing something good, uh, you know, being idealistic person in diplomacy, being idealistic, it can be uh, sometimes very counterproductive. Interesting other, other persons there, uh, Clemenceau, the, the, the prime minister of France, who said, I don't want to have the Germans at the table. Recently, a British diplomat said, uh, Brexit is very bad, very bad, because if you're not at the table, you are on the menu. And uh, he said, well, I don't want the Germans at the table. And then there was he had a young guy um, uh, who was his assistant, Jean Monnet, later the father of the European Union. And Jean Monnet said, he was really young, he said, Monsieur le Premier Ministre, if you don't have the Germans at the table, we will have another war in 20 years' time. And Clemenceau said, I know, but you know, we lost millions of people. I just cannot do this. So uh, we have to keep the Germans out. And they kept the Soviets out as well. I mean, this is really sad that negotiators know that there will be a disaster in the future, but they cannot prevent it. I mean, we recently saw this at Nagorno-Karabakh. We knew that after so many years, the Azeris would have so much money from gas and oil that they could build up a, a modern army. We knew that the Armenians who are poor uh, were still fighting the Soviet way. So we knew they would be defeated. And I'm absolutely sure that the Armenian leadership knew they would be defeated. But if they would have said, we are now in a strong position and now we are going to negotiate with Azerbaijan, then the constituency, and that's the problem in negotiation, the constituency, much more than the other negotiator, the constituency might have killed them as they killed one uh, 15 years before that, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the Armenian parliament. They know, they know, but they need a war in a way to convince the people that they should start negotiations. Uh, and uh, there's of course this linkage between war and negotiation. To me, the two sides of the same coin. It's the one or the other, or at the same time, or sometimes like in the European Union, as I so often say, in the EU, uh, we have war by peaceful means. Countries are still fighting for their own interests. Uh, they're still struggling, but they're doing this with words and not with weapons. So the mode changed. They're doing this through negotiation process. And I think there we can see that countries can change, that negotiators can start really to understand each other, can work together, although there are many problems. And um, the European Union, in, in that sense, I think is, uh, is, is, is really more or less at the moment, at least, 
the, um, the end game as far as negotiation is concerned. Uh, we have been making war for many centuries, but if you look over the centuries, um, the number of wars is going down, and the number of negotiation sessions is going up. And uh, thank God we have the European Union, although we are still very divided, especially on foreign policy, because we don't want to give up our sovereignty on that. So we have an evolution of negotiation. We have an evolution of negotiators, but we also have uh, Mr. Trump with his ego and his way to negotiate instead of negotiate. And we have, to have of course, uh, Putin and others and Xi. So how to struggle with those characters? Uh, we cannot uh, look into the heads. Uh, uh, diplomatic negotiation is something that, uh, you know, we have to are uh, the content, the, int the interest we have. And as the Brits say, what is a good negotiator? Firm, but flexible. That is firm on the hardware of negotiation, interest, power, and flexible on the software of negotiation, relationship, and process. That's a that's a great uh, great summary of uh, what great negotiators uh, are. Um, um, <clears throat> Paul, um, super interesting. Paul, um, I have a, a, another question which is sort of uh, less uh, historical and more forward oriented. Uh, if um, uh, when you think about, I don't know, one, two, three pieces of genuine advice that you would share with, uh, uh, with, your, with your followers, right? With, uh, with young negotiators, young diplomats that are to shape um, our present and future, what, what would those uh, things uh, be? Well, um, I think it is important also to, to read something about negotiation, not just to practice it. And what you often see is that diplomats don't have the time to read. Yes, they have to read their, uh, their reports, they have to read their mandates, instructions, and so on. But they, they have no time to think about what they are doing. That might be seem very strange, but it is always, I'm so surprised that, that the good ambassadors um, don't have a kind of, if you ask them, so why are you a good negotiator? Often they don't know. Uh, and there are some, of course, uh, notable exceptions. Robert Cooper at the moment, who is uh, uh, in, in the staff of the Foreign Action Service of the European Union, who's an excellent uh, mediator and negotiator, but at the same time, he's writing books about it. He recently published uh, the book, The Ambassadors. It's fascinating to read. We have other diplomats like Harold Nicholson, who were both intellectual and a very good negotiator, very good diplomat. So I think you should do both. You should practice, but you should also read. Now, I must admit that many of the academic books on negotiation, uh, they are not very helpful in, <laughs> in becoming a better negotiator. Uh, there is a certain distance between the academics studying negotiation and often uh, having no experience at all in, 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 for example, diplomatic negotiation. And then the diplomats are practicing negotiation but, but have no idea about the wider context. To bring these groups together is one of the things we try to do in Europe. Um, but I'm afraid that uh, it will never really wither away if you have different people from different 
uh, walks of life, then it is very difficult to, to bridge the gap. My advice to young diplomats, young negotiators is to look around, learn from others, uh, read a book now and then, uh, and then decide for yourself what is, is close to my nature, what is close to my style. Where do I think that I feel comfortable with this style? Don't try to teach yourself a style you are not comfortable with, because otherwise others will find out that uh, this is not really you. Be yourself. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a great pleasure uh, having you guys having you on our on our today's podcast. Uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, for your advice. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for sticking around uh, with us uh, in our first podcast on negotiation. Um, it's been a great pleasure uh, hosting the father of uh, negotiation training in diplomacy, uh, in, especially in Europe, uh, Paul Merz. Thank you so much, Paul, for being with us. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>